0: I always think of your skull being so, so the one rock solid thing about your body as an adult. <laughs> and to be sitting there thinking about this child's whole cranium... Yep. Like is like <laughs> plasma shifting to get through out there, you know, and and you know the thing comes out and it just looks like alien, you know, this long yeah. tubish head is coming out. <laughs> There's a part of me, hmm, hope that rounds out a little bit. <laughs> oh, we have to put a hat on that kid. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Welcome to Ordinary Voices. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I started this show with the mission to invite ordinary people into spiritual conversations so they might find hope in life. I don't really care where you are in your spiritual journey, I'm just thankful you've joined the conversation, and I pray it helps you find hope. Although I gotta admit, it feels like finding hope is becoming more and more difficult to find. As I was editing this show, news broke about the senseless loss of life in Orlando. My thoughts and prayers go out to all the families and friends of victims, and for all people gripped in fear as a result of this tragedy. In a way, it puts all of us in perspective when we consider this gift of life. If this is your first time with the show, I just want to let you know that this show is about questions, struggles, and opinions that don't always reflect my own views. The one thing that I ask of people is that you listen in a way that nurtures a better understanding of your neighbor and helps encourage future conversations. So with all of this in mind, let's begin today's show, Birth, A Nurse's View of Life. I'm a recreational fan of two famous astrophysicists, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan, meaning I've read just enough of their stuff to be dangerous. But they've helped me grow in my understanding of life beyond Earth. Yet in looking beyond Earth, I've started to look at life on it completely different. Let me explain. Because of their work, I know eventually we will find alien life, which is life that doesn't look like us. And we will also find another planet that looks just like Earth. We may even find a million planets that look just like Earth. And even if this happens, the life we have on this planet will still be one of the most rare and precious gifts in the entire universe. And I don't mean that just emotionally, I mean statistically. Elements abound in the universe, but the most prominent feature is still darkness and nothingness let's say the orbit of the moon was the boundary of our backyard and it established the area we were allowed to play in in that play area there would be over a hundred square miles of darkness and nothingness for every person on our planet if human life is so rare why do we treat it so poorly so crudely and so violently we hate it we ignore it and we kill it i thought i might start exploring the issues of life by looking at birth So I reached out to a friend who's a nurse. Julia currently works in a hospital as a care coordinator, helping patients with medical issues as they discharge from a hospital. But she started in a cardiac unit and then spent several years in a birthing unit. She knows my wife, Peggy, who is also a nurse. So I started our conversation by asking her what she missed most about being in the birthing unit. Let's take a listen. mind immediately click to of what you missed?
1: I think, um, being privy to the most emotional moment of someone's life. Um, I, the first patient that I thought of was a patient who had delivered a term stillborn baby previously. Um, and so this was their first live pregnancy. So, um, and they call them rainbow babies so the first time you deliver a live baby you've had a, a miscarriage or loss um and that is it's just so incredibly emotional and to be able to witness that is very for some reason meaningful to me or patients who had struggled for years and years with infertility and this is now their first baby together it's it's that um kind of like that miracle of life thing and a lot of patients would ask me oh you see this every day does it get old and i would always say no it, it doesn't um i never thought it got old it was just it was just so exciting and special every time and um when the father would start crying like sometimes i would kind of tear up you know and um and i i lo- i loved it i absolutely loved that part I think it's kind of amazing what um, an unborn baby goes through, like sometimes they're under incredible physical stress, um, and you're about to crap your pants like, oh my god, this the heart tones are bad, um, we're running back to the OR, we're doing a crash C-section, and then they come out screaming, and it's like, oh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating how life is created, and I think, unfortunately, our um, maternal population is a lot sicker than what it used to be. It's older women giving birth, more obesity, diabetes, hypertension um, than some of the OBs that I've talked to said, you know, 10, even 10, 15 years ago, we never saw this. Um, and with the advances in infertility treatments, older women are giving birth, which kind of comes with more risk factors. So I think some babies are put through even more stress. Um, and so it, it's still fascinating to think, oh, they came out fine. And then just how a woman's body can produce milk and food all by itself to nourish and feed a baby is, is interesting. And I, I think one of the questions, um, that I was thinking about when you said, what are they, what are some things most people don't know about human life and I think it's how resilient the human body is and it can withstand um, quite a bit. Um, but then you know there, there is a breaking point and um, I think to use a cliche term life is precious. Um, sometimes that life is gone in an instant um, without warning, um, without explanation. And a few horrible deliveries that I was in. We never knew the cause of why a fully healthy pregnancy came out dead. To try and be an emotional support um, for that family, it is exhausting because you don't know, and you'll ne- you'll probably never know. Um, and so that's the the other emotional part that's very that was tough.
0: The stress is great for the baby and for the mother, correct?
1: Yes, I think so. Yeah. And even just, like, things your body goes through during labor, like the shaking, and um, most people start vomiting, and then they think, oh, I'm getting sick, and it's like, no, that's just the normal process, and hormones are raging, and F-words are flying, and... Um, I guess what I found interesting is how different women cope with that. Some are very silent and put together and others are not. Um, And just how some of the family dynamics play out. Um, Sometimes they don't know who the father is. Um, Sometimes they are married. They both got separated, the woman got pregnant with someone else's child, but then they got back together with the husband, so now the baby coming out, even though they're still married, is not a shared um, biological connection, and sometimes the fathers handle that differently. Um, How so? I think some just kind of going with the flow, treating it like, oh yeah, this is my baby now too, Um, and others realizing this is... Not my baby. Um, I kind of want nothing really to do with it.
0: Like that kind of a transition happens in the delivery room?
1: Or immediately postpartum or just yeah. like the inability of the father to connect with their own child. Um, or if there's a question if they really are the father... Um, and sometimes the father views the baby. If there's a question of paternity, sometimes I think they view the baby and they're like, "Is this really mine? And then that kind of clouds over um, that kind of important connection that you establish immediately postpartum.
0: What, what's interesting but, about that is you're you're kind of touching on something that I never thought about. When we talk about birthing, we talk about the importance of the mother. Uh, even for mothers to learn how to breastfeed, I mean, some of these basic things, but, and you talked about the coupling of the mother with the child and how important that is, but this immediate dynamic of coupling with the father yeah, is something it, I never thought about.
1: Sometimes altered.
0: <laughs> right,
1: right. And I think one cool thing that Genesis started doing is, um, A couple years after I started working there, they got very into skin-to-skin immediately after delivery. We started encouraging the fathers to take off their shirt and do skin-to-skin with their own baby. And a lot of the fathers were like, well, that's weird. I thought only the mother could do it. And it's like, no, it's something you can do if the mother isn't available. Or, um, you know, when she feeds and bonds, if she's sleeping, you know, you can kind of move into that um, what is traditionally thought as a motherly role. Um, Mm -hmm. and so kind of blurring that line between what does a female do and what does a male do? It's, um, you know, you both can do skin to skin and kind of participate that way.
0: What's, what's important about the skin to skin?
1: There's all this research out that skin to skin, the first hour of life helps, um, breastfeeding rates, um, there's some sketchy evidence on, like, infection later on in life, um, preventing that, preventing asthma and ear infections in the first really, of life. Yeah, I don't know how I think about that, but the, it's enough evidence where even the doctors were all on board.
0: So, so then if there's a dis, uh, disjointed relationship with the father, then that's got to be kind of an awkward thing if you're pushing the, t- the physical touch thing.
1: Yeah, and I I think the most awkward delivery I was in a redhead who had paler skin than me and her boyfriend and her mom were all in the room and the baby that came out was half black and she had had a one night stand with someone and the shock of the color of the skin was not something that the patient's mom was able to handle. So now she's technically grandma, and she is freaking out about how dark this baby will get. And she came up to me, and they were debating putting the baby up for adoption. And grandma's deciding factor on whether or not she should convince her daughter to give this baby up for adoption was how basically how black this baby's skin was going to get. Oh my and that put me in such an incredibly awkward position. And I just said, you know, adoption is very personal, um, you know, it's kind of your goals in life, your access to resources, it, it should have nothing to do with the color of the skin, but I couldn't really say all of what I was thinking. Um, I think, I, and I'm sure Peg would agree, as a nurse, you really, like, have to put the filter on. sure if that was the right choice so explaining to grandma in this situation that um you know it is her choice um this is your daughter and the best thing you can do is support her in her decision and i know that's hard and um i always tell people when unexpected things happen there's always a grieving process so um i told grandma in this case it's normal to feel angry um at your daughter, the world, um, that's just a normal part of the grieving process. And, um, and I said, it's important to talk about those feelings and kind of work through them instead of suppressing them and having them show up later. And, and I, I felt comfortable telling her this because she was very like keyed in and really kind of wanted my advice. Um, some patients and family members don't really want my advice. So you kind of got to, um, I think you got to get a sense of what the patient wants from you and then go off of
0: that. <laughs> That's another element. I mean, to be thinking about being able to read what's going on, not just in the room, not just medically, but emotionally um, and, and all the dynamics of family. Um, it's, it's one of the things that you wouldn't necessarily think about a nurse in a birthing right. situation.
1: I think some of it is learned too, um, because my preceptor, you know, on, um, patients where the mother wasn't really involved in the care, um, but she had older kids. My preceptor would always say, well, the baby's needs are being met. Um, the older siblings are kind of taking in the motherly role. She, you know, works 60 hours a week. She's a single mom. Um, you know, this is normal behavior. It's not how you and I might care for our own child. But in this case, um, with her situation, this is this is how it is. Um, so I think kind of as a nurse, you know, we have ideas of what we would do in a situation and being able to accept that in their situation, that's not doable.
0: That's kind of a critical thing for a lot of people, not just for nursing, but specifically in a birthing unit, that um, you have the way you want to do it. But there's got to be that flexibility to allow people to be who they are and do it the, their way. Right. Um, and do people cross that line sometimes? Is that something that's easy to cross? or?
1: Um, I mean, I think there are times when the patient has an idea about how they want to do something and it's compromising the life of their child. Um, so how do you tell them that what they're doing is dangerous um, in terms of how they want to give birth? And the most horrific delivery I was in, um, it was a VBAC that went so many weeks after, didn't go into labor. So a VBAC is um, having a vaginal birth after cesarean, um, and there's you have to meet certain criteria in order to safely VBAC, and she had surpassed that criteria. So the doctor said, at this point, I'm recommending a C-section, and the patient said, no, I want to deliver vaginally. And the baby ended up suddenly, the heart tones went down, but then they came back up. Um, So this mother took forever to discuss it over with her husband to finally decide on a C-section, and the baby was born dead and we coded, we did CPR, we did everything for, I think, 33 minutes, Mm. and, um, current guidelines say if a baby has no heart rate after 10, you can cease resuscitation, um, so we went three times as long as the recommended time, and so that was really hard for even the doctor to deal with, was if she had been more, um, she's like maybe if i was more mean about convincing her to to do a c-section sooner would we have would this baby still be alive and i think in those situations there's a lot of what ifs and the interesting thing that as a staff you're all kind of grieving together um you know the anesthesiologist is obviously kind of shook up um the ob doctor the other doctor that came in to assist and all the staff um you could sit in a debriefing and go through the what ifs all day long. And finally the doctor said, you know, ultimately it was the mother's choice and that's what we respected. And I was like, well, yeah, but now this baby's dead and we can't, we can't undo that. And, and so that was hard. That was really hard to process mm-hmm. for me.
0: Well, I mean, that's one of the things we don't think about in that, in that realm of people that stand outside of that hospital is the emotional toll of something like that on the doctor, on the nurses, on the people involved in that whole system. That is um, what you had said before. Well, you see this all the time. You might see it often,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. you know, but um, that does not make it any easier to handle emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I think we would deal with better coping skills, um, but it doesn't, a death, um, doesn't get any easier to deal with. And what I was describing to Nick is we're used in the cardiac unit and he now works in the cath lab, you know, we're used to old people dying. And when an 87 year old dies, it's sad, but you know, 87 year olds die, a newborn baby, doesn't die. And so that aspect of death was a lot different, transitioning from the elderly population to this population. Um, And it's something I had never considered before. And my mother-in-law is a hospital chaplain. And so she is literally a godsend because she can jump into a code and she is amazing and so she in those situations um i don't really go to nick i go to her and she's very level-headed and very um you know kind of works through that like spiritual part that you struggle with in those situations i think
0: mm-hmm. Do women giving birth understand what they're going through?
1: Not but... at all. <laughs> I, I think I joked at camp when another staff member um, he had some strong opinions on birth control, and I was asking him about like ovulation, and he had no idea really what that was um and and i and my point was we know so little about the human body even about our own bodies and how it works um and then we get into a situation where um, things are coming out of our body and um and i guess it kind of surprised me how many women didn't want to know what was going on down there
0: it's just a subject we don't want to talk about
1: yeah I think I connected most with the teenage mothers, like even the 14 and 15 year olds, because they're still like, their mind is still very open. And most of them come from some sort of dysfunction, at least in this area, even though I know teen pregnancies can happen, you know, with a a normal family. But um, I think they were the most open to education and they in their lives may not have anyone to clue in on and trust, but as the nurse walking in, you're looking them in the eye, giving them the time of day, and then all of a sudden their ears open, and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to listen to this person. And that was such a huge, um, like, that that teaching part of me, I think, really came out with with the teenagers. I loved it. Right. And I felt like, you know, the 39-year-old who has a degree in engineering, really doesn't want to listen to a word you're saying. Um, But but a 15-year-old might might actually listen to you.
0: (laughs) I kind of always assumed men didn't know anything about how women's bodies worked. What I didn't realize until my wife became a nurse was how much this was true of women. Despite all of our technology, women can still die during childbirth, and so can healthy children. Giving birth is not a risk-free process. Please, for the psychological and physical health of all God's children, allow yourself to be educated about reproduction and life. Don't be afraid to admit you don't know what you don't know. There are people like Julia in every hospital that can help you, and if they can't help you, they can find someone who can. Let's take a moment for a commercial break. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If you like what you hear, if you find that it provides you a healthy challenge to grow, please consider sharing it with a friend. One of the other things that I'm discovering is I'm kind of hungry for comments. It helps me know what you like. If you're looking to grow a little bit more, Monday through Friday, I send out daily reflections on life. I've discovered a lot of people have really enjoyed them. It's confirmed what I thought. People are hungry for a spiritual conversation. So if you're interested in receiving those, go to the website ordinaryvoices.org and subscribe to the email list. Also, this is a listener-supported show, and I'm working to make it sustainable. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Patreon button on the website ordinaryvoices.org. Let's keep this conversation going. Now, let's go back to our show. If you've wrapped up in the five things that you know, you have learned about life, Be working in that birthing center, what would that be?
1: Well, um, kind of goes back to the resiliency of the human body. Sometimes I think God gives you too much to handle in some of those horrific situations, um, and I think they can make you a better person. For example, um, a patient that I took care of that, um, had delivered a stillborn baby and then two years later she came back and I took care of her again um with that pregnancy and just listening to her I think it had been two years um the way it changed her as a person the way um she felt compassion and empathy for other people and I don't often hear the aftermath of any of that so it was really interesting to um in that moment this horrible thing was happening and what it did to her as a person. And then here we are again. Um, those are only two things. Oh goodness. (laughs) There's
0: a test. you have to come up with five?
1: I think in some of the most stressful situations, it can really bring out the good in people. Um, I also think you're never ever alone ever. Um, and even women who come in that are single moms, they're abandoned from their family. They're, they're never alone. And sometimes you have to sit down and kind of problem solve with them and kind of think through like, who can you call? Who are your supports? Um, and sometimes their supports aren't family or friends, but it might be in the form of an agency or community resources. Um, but just teaching moms, like you, you aren't alone and you don't have to be alone. Cause I think in our culture we kind of get this mindset of if I'm not around family then, then I'm alone um, but you really I think there are people that care about you sometimes you just have to ask maybe I'm off on that
0: well I, th- I think no you're not and you lied <laughs> you said you weren't going to say anything profound <laughs> <laughs> and so you lied Because that is kind of profound, isn't it?
1: I just think, I just heard, like, all the time. I mean, because when, you know, we're on the computer doing our little admission history, it's like, oh, is the father involved? Who are your support systems? And women would always say, I'm, uh, father's not involved, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out, you know, they they do have a family member, an aunt or someone. Um, They have a friend. They... Um, go to church sporadically and so it's like well can you call your pastor um oh yeah okay um so i just think it takes a little bit more problem solving with them but i think at the end of the day you're you're not um i guess in my experience maybe
0: no i i know i i think you're onto something and i one of the things that takes me back when you say something like that is, I feel like I'm constantly in a world that's having to justify the social ministries and not even social agencies around. And and I know several people that are running social agencies, community-based agencies, working with the low income, working with the poor, that just feel like every day. They're under attack yes. for for just reaching out to broken people, mm-hmm. and and having to justify their existence, and to be sitting there thinking about in these situations like that. What what are you going to do? Put that person out on a rock somewhere until they <laughs> die? Is that is that <laughs> the kind of place that we want to have? And and to sit there and think. I mean. Even for someone, and, I, and I'm thinking through a whole list of people that provide those kind of services, for them to be able to hear someone like you talk about how important their life, their work that they do, to, to let somebody know they're not alone. Um, it, I, think it would, it, I think it would be completely changing to their life.
1: you're going to say that you're pro-life you have to support a life beyond birth Mm -hmm. and um a lot of people don't they just say must live goodbye um and there there's a lot more um to that young life that needs nurturing and support than i think what people realize Mm -hmm. um unless you've been in that situation i don't know so that's hard to sometimes being on facebook and seeing some of my friends who you know post about those social agencies and and are attacking them as a nurse it's really hard to to watch that and think you know you're so privileged and you had access to resources you had a family um and many don't um so you know that's the other side of being a nurse that I think is hard. Right. <laughs> kind of hold your tongue in your <laughs> friend circle.
0: <laughs> well, maybe it is sometimes that we take for granted the gift of life.
1: Yes, I would agree. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean. Um,
1: that is number five. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's not fair because I supplied that one for you. <laughs> what well, is true, though.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, having never experiencing death in my personal life until I became a nurse. And my grandparents passed away a few weeks ago. A day apart. Um, I wasn't close to my grandma. They were both my mom's parents. Um, but I was really close to my grandfather. And I had never until two weeks ago gone to a funeral of somebody that I was very close to. Um, and being 30 and having that happen is, Nick thinks is kind of strange. But um, so I experienced death through strangers and witnessed a lot of death um, before ever ever having experienced it in my own personal life. So that was kind of interesting, to say the least. Hmm. Um, and my grandfather was in hospice and I went flew up to Fargo when he was really sick and he was full of tumors. And I knew it was stage four. I made him a DNR, got him into hospice, you know, said we're not going to do aggressive treatment, and my family jumped down my throat and they thought that was the most horrible thing ever. And um, as eventually they came to accept what was happening, then my mom said, Oh, I didn't realize hospice was so wonderful. Like he's getting Carrie's comfortable. Um, and she later apologized to me for being so angry and saying some really hurtful things. But I think um, experiencing it through Death Through Strangers helped in my personal life, kind of help guiding some situations. And you know, you go to the ICU and you're like, I, I never ever wanted to see a family member be kept alive like that for weeks on end. And I think it kind of helps a little bit Guide your decisions. Um, so that was, I guess, meaningful. That has mm-hmm. nothing to do with birth, but
0: well, I, it was actually kind of leading into my next question because I didn't think about this when I, when I sent stuff out to you. But you know, what did you learn? You know, where are the similarities and where are the differences between birth and cardiac? Because those are opposite <laughs> ends of the spectrum, aren't they? <laughs>
1: said death is is more accepted when you're elderly death is not accepted um in an infant um there's always drama
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is the one thing we're gonna there's always drama and it doesn't matter what age
1: (laughs) yeah there's always um i think dysfunctional family there's always a little bit of dysfunction in every single family And even the most put-together family on the outside can sometimes crack in the middle, whether it's with an elderly patient or a baby. And kind of recognizing those cracks and addressing them before they, you know, turn into a giant earthquake um, is helpful no matter what unit you work in.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think about with that is when you have... Even with a solid put together family that's really close, even within that family, each different person has a different way of reacting and and behaving. And and, and I wonder how much of that we have this in our head because we're family, we're all going to be the same, react the same, we're going to say, and we don't give each other allowances to react differently to things
1: absolutely and i think when my mom i was at a hotel room in fargo all by myself i was up there for a week by myself and it was the first time nick and i had been apart for a week and it was really hard to listen to my family say these hurtful things and and so i would call nick every night and kind of unload and he's like you have to understand you know they don't see that sight of death that you've seen, and this is just kind of their way of grieving, and he really kind of simmered me down, and he's like, you know, you're very close to your mom, you know, in a few weeks this will all blow over, and I basically, in so many words, told him to F off, you don't know what you're talking about, and then a few weeks later my mom had a very very nice phone conversation when she went and saw her own father, and and then next like, you know, I I told you so and I'm
0: like, Yeah, you did <laughs> <laughs> Well that is something that's hard it's hard to process because we internalize the hurt. Yeah. But when 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 the anxiety and pain that someone else is carrying gets it gets manifested, we just there's a part of us we just gotta endure what people say to a degree in that, in that moment and understand, try to understand as much as we can, um, that they're hurting and that's painful. I I mean, I think it's okay that you still told your husband to F off because I think he can (laughs) endure that part of your (laughs) stress and pain. Today, that you're a nurse.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think it. I just think the way you interact with the general public as well, um, like when people snap at you, you know, you don't know what personal battles they're dealing with, too. And so to kind of think through those things, or, or when a family member says hurtful things to you, it's kind of, like you said, their way of reacting and grieving. So I think the. The empathy that I have for people has changed dramatically.
0: I read an article once where someone called Neil deGrasse Tyson an atheist, which he vehemently denied, arguing instead that he was an agnostic, that is, He neither believes in nor denies the possibility of God. To him, there is no proof of God, and he's not going to go looking for it either. He did add a clarifier that I found interesting, saying, I have trouble believing in a compassionate God when there are so many forces in the universe simultaneously seeking to kill you. A happy thought. But it should serve to remind us what an absolute unimaginable miracle, blessing, precious and rare gift every life is. And this is a reality that does not stop at birth. From the moment a child is born, there are forces seeking to destroy it. Germs, infections, neglect, and indifference. Did you know the absence of human touch can kill a baby? These threats increase with each new day. Abuse, hunger, cold, accidents, poverty, cancer. With each new day, we design some new standard to rate, separate, and divide life based on gender, race, nationality, sexual preference, sexual identity, wealth, dress, behavior, education, language, and religion. Why is it so difficult for us to treat human life as a rare and precious gift? I've lost my strength to hate. I've lost my strength to carry the hate you have for me. And I've lost the will to build up my hate for you. I've lost desire to hate people different from me. And I've lost my attention span to read internet posts that perpetuate hate. I have not lost my faith in Christ. No, I've decided to own that. I've decided I believe in John 1.3, that all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. Not one thing. I've also been embracing 1 John 4, 7, and 8. And in 12, verse 12, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. I found it interesting And listening to Julia talk about birth, how often love can make a difference in life. That's our show for today. I want to thank Julia for sharing and thank you for listening. Please join me next time when I talk to a young man who gave up a career in video production to work with homeless children. Until then, please remember to help me invite more people into this conversation. Check out the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org. Recommend it to people you know, consider supporting it, and let me know what you think. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening.